feel this morning when you woke up and went outside? Did you feel that cool air? That is what I'm talking about. I am all about the fall, and fall is coming. And for those of you guys that love summer, you're saying boo to the cool air. Uh, but we are continuing our uh, series on First Peter. Uh, excited to continue in August and uh, first part of September. We're going to start a new sermon series in the middle of September. It's going to gear us up for our 13-year anniversary as a church. going to be an amazing celebration time, absolutely, in October. And uh, really excited for that. Uh, but excited to continue the sermon series this morning. Um, if you are just new with us, I want to catch you up a little bit on the journey of First Peter. Uh, First Peter is written to a group of Christians that are struggling in the midst of trial, uh, struggling in the midst of persecution, extreme persecution. And Peter is reminding them about their call, about who they are and what they're supposed to be and how they can continue to walk in the way of Jesus. And he's trying to encourage them and, and give some clarity as to how to walk out their faith in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty. Um, and he talks about this in First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Trials are an opportunity for the Lord to refine us, to forge in us the things that he wants in our lives, for us to become more like Jesus. Even though we hate trials, we hate going through that stuff, it's what actually deepens and grows our faith if we stay faithful with Jesus. And so Peter's telling them this, and then he goes on to talk about how uh, the only way we're going to be able to do this, you're going to be able to do this, is you have to remember that you are a priest that you are called to live different than the rest of the world, that you are partnering with God, and that you're supposed to show the world what God's like in the midst of difficulty, and you have a great opportunity to actually show the world what God's like, and that that's really the whole point of this journey, to bring people to Jesus, to help them understand. And in, in order for us to do that, it means living different than the rest of the world. It means living as, as foreigners, as aliens, as he talks about in chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, unbelievers, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so this journey of living differently. And he begins to flesh that out practically as to what that looks like. And he starts tackling certain situations of, of uh, relational conflict that's taking place. And sure enough, he talks about Government. He talks about the Roman government, the empire, the emperor, and how they're supposed to interact with uh, governing authorities. We talked about this last week. Uh, he says this, chapter 3, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, where the emperor has a supreme authority to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Uh, this is what God, this is what Peter is inviting the Christians to, that God is a God of order, not chaos. A humble person submits to authority and honors. This is what Peter's calling on, and Peter's going to talk more about 
this in different relationships, different things, and he's going to really hammer it home. First Peter chapter 5, but I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Uh, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, then he begins to talk, and what we're going to tackle with today is the topic of marriage. Now, one of the things I'll just tell you, um, my marriage, we've been married now for 15 years, and I've noticed, absolutely, uh, and I will say this, is over the last, like, year or two, I don't know what it is, but, like, the younger people, like, they actually come up to me and ask for me about wisdom, about life and marriage. I'm kind of like, wait a second, like, I'm not that much older than you, but all of a sudden, young people look at me, and they think that I'm old, and I'm kind of like, I don't know how I feel about this in regards to, like, I still think I'm 25. I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm still a young guy, and, and it's changed. It's really changed over the last uh, couple years. Um, but I still think of myself as young. But, but what I find fascinating is I was spending time, 1 Peter chapter 3, and reflecting on the relationships of people that I have that have impacted me and my wife in our marriage. Um, there are people that live out 1 Peter 3 really well. That doesn't mean that it's easy, but they live out 1 Peter chapter 3 really well. And what I've also noticed is there's been times in me and Nally's marriage where we are doing well, and there's times that we're not doing well. There's rocky seasons, there's hard seasons. And the moment that uh, I look at my own part in the relationship, and I look at 1 Peter chapter 3, in the rocky seasons, I'm not doing 1 Peter chapter 3 very well. I'm not doing what the scripture has for me. Not even open to it. In fact, I get pretty self-centered. Jesus is inviting us today to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And if you thought last week's sermon was difficult, Peter just keeps ramping it up. So what does he have for us today when it comes to marriage? This is what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right, without fear of what your husbands might do. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with an understanding as you, uh, with your wife with understanding as you uh, live together. She may be weaker than you, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. All right, let's head home. Sound good? <laughs> I'm guessing for the women in the audience, there's a couple of things that might be triggering you right now. Accept authority. Calling your husband's master that you're weaker than him, that you shouldn't go shopping at Target and buy nice clothes. <laughs> My wife loves Target. 
Hear me out. Just for a little bit. What's going on? I definitely think partly what's going on is there's a little bit of chaos going on in some marriages. Peter's addressing it. Because every single marriage that I know of has problems eventually. Right? So he's trying to address that. What he's also trying to address, if you notice, he's talking about trying to win the spouse. There are women and even men that are becoming followers of Jesus. And as they're becoming followers of Jesus, it's bringing conflict in the home. Because in the home, uh, in the first century, it was part of a culture of a patriarchal culture where most of the time for the husbands, they're going to lead and be in charge. And if they're not worshiping Jesus, they're worshiping other gods. And if you're in my home and I'm worshiping other gods, I want you to worship those other gods as well. Because if the gods get angry, we got problems. So you as my spouse, you need to worship the gods that I worship. And there are Christians that are saying, I can't do that anymore. And there's conflict that's going on in the first century home. As Jesus is entering into the home, Jesus, people are, are serving their allegiance to Jesus, not to these other gods. There's Christians that are trying to figure out how to live as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, now that they're following Jesus. There's chaos in the home. And Peter's trying to address this chaos. He's trying to address the brokenness that's going on. Christian husbands, non-believing husbands, Christian wives, non-believing wives, trying to get them to understand what it means to live in a biblical, God-fearing marriage. I'm guessing for some words for us this morning. As we as a people are still wrestling with this. I just want to take a look, though, at the, the biblical trajectory of what we see from the beginning and where we find ourselves today. If you remember in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it said that husband and wife, Adam and Eve, were in harmony with God and with each other. And God had told them to have dominion over the earth, to be good stewards of the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and just obey what God has, has in store for you. You can have dominion, you can eat, but don't eat from the tree of, what was it? Knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat that from that tree. God said, don't do it. Adam and Eve both choose to disobey God. And in the process of disobeying God, we see that chaos begins to take place. We see the destruction of relationship. To take place. You see it from the very beginning. God enters into the garden. Adam and Eve, where are you? They're hiding. They're covering themselves. They know what they've done is wrong. God asks Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we sinned. Who told you that you sinned? He's asking more questions. And eventually, you know, he, he does what we knuckleheads do. It was the woman. She gave me a piece of fruit and I ate it. Just throws the woman under the bus, right? Broken relationship. Doesn't take any ownership for himself. And chaos ensues. We see right away there's going to be problems in the relationship. God even says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. For those of you guys, for you women that have had kids, you're like, yep, experience that, right? 
And in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. God said, broken relationship, it was going to happen. And sure enough, it happens. You see it in the uh, patriarchal culture. Women begin to be treated less than human. Treated horribly. Other gods are entered into the picture. Slavery takes place. You see culture beginning to break down and get away from God's design of relationship. Of choosing to actually be one with one another. And as that continues to take place over time, eventually you get Jesus who arrives on the scene. And Jesus begins to restore relationship back with God and with one another. Helping people understand what it means to love well. To honor well. You see Jesus doing some pretty radical things. Like not only helping them understand the Torah and, and what its original intent was, but in addition to that, helping men understand what it means to be a follower of God. He actually begins to have women that come to his teachings. Which for a rabbi, you never had women come to your teachings. But he honors women. He involves women. He goes and he actually goes to the well of a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day and meets this woman there. Why? Because she is full of guilt and full of shame because she's had multiple husbands and the people are talking about her and she would prefer to just stay home but she has to get water. And a man, a Jewish man, talks to a woman in the middle of the day which was unheard of and meets her there and she meets Jesus. Jesus begins the process of restoring relationship, showing how relationship works, showing how husband and wife would maybe talk to one another. And the Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2, and all of a sudden Jesus is getting entered into the homes and marriages are starting to transform, but they're, they're looking different than how the world and culture is operating. And you see this being played out all throughout the community, and yet there's still struggle. First Peter. And Peter's trying to address it. He's trying to help them walk out what it means to be a Christian. But what we have to understand is the only way that res restoration and redemption actually happens is if we understand that Jesus, and the Christians learn this, and, and we are still learning this, that Jesus in every aspect of our life, that he must increase. And John the Baptist said that we must what? We must what? Decrease. You see, when you first choose to follow Jesus, it's not just a transactional thing. It's not just like, I believe, I'm good to go. When you choose to follow Jesus, that means that Jesus is Lord of every aspect of your life. And then as you begin to understand Jesus, you begin to understand the gospel in every area of your life. And when you begin to understand the gospel in every area of your life, here's the thing. Followers of Jesus the byproduct of your life that you're growing closer to Jesus means more humility. How is that? Well, here's the thing. As much as I thought I knew about how amazing God was because he died for my sins when I was 10 years old, I really began to like, wow, like he died for my sins and I want to follow him. As much as I thought that God was so amazing and so beautiful and so majestic 
and perfect, magnificent, and full of glory. I thought that at 10 years old, if you were to ask me, did I really know how amazing he was? No, it's been growing. As you follow Jesus, that grows. As you understand the amazing God that we serve, his glory in our lives, his his majesty in our lives, all of those things that we look at and go, this is who God is. That should be growing as we follow Jesus. Would you agree with me? Is that true? If it's the, if it's the same or less, do we, are we really learning from his word? That grows. And as God's glory in my life grows, do you know what that, you know what I begin to realize about myself? I am nothing compared to God. my brokenness becomes even more apparent. Because I, I begin to be convicted in realizing, man, like, why am I really doing what I'm doing? Is it for God? Or is it for my own ego? My own sinfulness, my own shallowness, my own pride, my own sin becomes more and more apparent the more that I follow Jesus and understand the grandeur of who God is and his glory grows, and I began to realize I missed the mark way more than I realized. Has anybody else experienced that? And what that is, is humility. And there's only one person that took care of that growing, growing, growing gap. And we know that person Sunday school answer is who? Jesus, right? We know that. But the gospel should move me to a place of more and more humility. And you might be saying, well, that's really depressing. Is that good news? It is good news. Because even though I become more aware of my brokenness, it also reminds me of the infinite value. The infinite value that I have not because of myself, but because the God of the universe still chose to come and die for me. The God that we serve and the God that we worship, he still died for me. And he's given me a new identity. He's given me a new purpose. He's given me a new mission. And this leads to living a life with a posture of humility. You see, a humble person submits to authority and honors. Talked about that last week. And the same is true in our marriages. Now, you would say, oh yeah, a humble person submits and honors authority. Yep. That's easy to say until it gets difficult to actually do. Right? Anybody like tacos? All right, we're going to start following Taco Tuesday. You'd all be like, yeah, let's do it, right? Talked about Reed's Dairy Ice Cream. I had Reed's Dairy Ice Cream again last week. <laughs> if I were to say it's Ice Cream Saturday, you'd be like, yeah, let's do it, right? My little Theo, I'm recognizing my kids. They eat too much McDonald's, okay? We decided this week we need to eat healthier when we eat out. We need healthier. So we did the old Subway thing. Oldest loved it. Middle child loved it. 
Theo was like, I'm ready for it. And then he ate a bite of that sandwich and was like, I don't like it. I don't want it. Submission isn't submission until you don't like it. It's not easy. It takes great humility to want to. For all of us, we have to look at that. It's never easy. It addresses the things inside of us of what, what's motivating us and also what we feel like should be the real situation, the real just situation. It requires us to call out in faith. In addition to that, Peter addresses beauty. And some of you women already know this. Some of you don't know this because you've been told from women and men that you're defined by something other than Jesus. But Peter says that true beauty isn't what comes from the outside. True beauty is what comes from the inside. Psalm 139, For you were created in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You are beautiful because God says you are beautiful. And I know it's hard to hear because you had a, a mom or a dad that told you over and over again that you weren't beautiful, that you were overweight, that you needed to do this, you needed to do that. And God says, you're my daughter, you're my son. Our daughters, dads, need to hear us say to them over and over again, you are beautiful. Alice knows that when I look at her, and I give her that look, and I say, Alice, you are beautiful. And she lights up. And she finishes it by saying, on the inside and the outside. And I tell her over and over and over and over again. Because she needs to hear it. Husbands, it says honor. Honor which belongs or is shown to one. Of the honor which one has by reason of rank and state of office which he holds, deference, reverence. Husbands, honor is an honor until you see your wife as greater than you. And it takes great humility to honor people as greater, to lift them up and for you, for us, to be a servant. Peter says, instead of taking on your authority, why don't you be a servant? Why don't you honor? Why don't you lay your life down? N.T. Wright puts it this way, supposing the way a married man can find true fulfillment is not by bullying his wife into submission, forcing her to do what he wants, supposing the way to fulfillment is through treating his wife as an equal, even though she will, in the normal run of things, be less physically strong. Supposing in a religious terms as well as other ways, she stands on level ground with you. Now there's a radical idea. We should allow these radical ideas, radical then, radical now, to sink into our imagination. What would it look like, husbands, that we saw our jobs to serve and honor and lift up our wives instead of lording it over them? 
I love this story. Andy Stanley talks about um, him traveling. And when he was traveling, he was uh, heading to a friend's wedding. And there was a group of people that went and asked some questions, theological questions about marriage. And the woman asked, she said, Andy, I heard a preacher say that the man had to be the head of his home because a two-headed home is like a two-headed monster. Is that what you believe, that the man is the head? Here's the gist of what he said. Before I answer your question, imagine a married man, you're married to a man who genuinely believes you are the most fantastic person on the planet. He's crazy about you. You have no doubt that your happiness is his top priority. He listens when you talk. He honors you in public. To use an old-fashioned term, he cherishes you. He's not afraid to make a decision. He values your opinions. He leads, but he listens. He's responsible. He's not argumentative. You have no doubt that he would give his life for you if the need arose. You never worry about him being unfaithful. In fact, to quote an old Flamingo song, he only has eyes for you. As I was saying all this, the folks on the other end of the table tuned in and they began to listen. And the longer I talked, the more I sensed their resistance ebbing. And when I finished, I paused and I asked, would either of you have trouble following a man like that? And the girl bl uh, blurted out right away, well, heck no. But she didn't say heck no. She said something else. <laughs> I want to meet that guy. And everybody laughed. And without realizing it, she made my point. It's easy, perhaps natural, to submit to someone who generally has your best interests in mind. There's no fear, no reason to resist. Conversely, anyone who has your best interests in mind has, in effect, submitted to you. That person has chosen to leverage him or herself for your benefit. Basically saying, you first. And here's the thing, husbands. When we're dating, we do this. We do 1 Peter chapter 3. And what happens oftentimes, as I'm counseling marriages, is somewhere along the lines, husbands, we get really lazy. Because we've gotten the catch. The hunt is over. And we just slide back. But what if we did this? What if I, what if you, what if we did this intentionally, regularly, every week? Not just around the birthday or anniversary, but every week. How would our marriages be different? How did they be different if we understood the love of God in our lives and we understood that the disciples of Jesus were liberated, were set free to love and to honor and to serve from a posture of humility because we understand the greatness of God and the goodness of God and that he loves us in spite of the brokenness that we live out every day. But I want you to notice, what's the greater thrust that Peter's coming off of? What, what is he trying to hold on to? What is he trying to help them to understand in the midst of this chaotic 
households that he's trying to address. Do you notice what he said? First Peter chapter 3, verse 1, how he started it. They will be won over by. They'll be won over by. What is he wanting them to understand? What is he wanting them to get? What he's wanting them to understand and to remember is now that Jesus has saved you from your brokenness. He set you on a mission to bring everybody else with you into the kingdom of God. That you would live such lives. Remember 1 Peter chapter, you would live such lives among the unbelievers that they would have no answer for your, for your behavior, for your life. They would see that you live differently. And for those of you this morning that have a spouse that doesn't know Jesus, the prayer is that they would be won over. And that you would just own your part, not God's part, not their part. That you would just look at your own part and go, where can I honor? Where can I submit? Where can I serve? So that they would understand who Jesus is because the mission of Jesus is our number one priority as disciples of Jesus now, even in our marriages. And this is what Peter's calling on them to be, to be a disciple who loves and honors and serves from that posture so that people would come to know him. And we as the church are called to be a people that help others grow in this process. That we'd become humble servants to honor and serve one another. That we'd honor one another and, and serve one another even in our marriages. And so as we wrap up today, I just want you to think about this. If this is the call for us as disciples of Jesus in the home to honor and to serve what does it look like for you to start doing that in your marriage? What does it look like? What does it look like for us to be motivated from that place in our homes? And then the second thing on the take home is this, is what does it look like for you to pour into other people that need to learn how to live this out in their marriage? Husbands, men, you need to get connected to a men's group or a home group where you can talk about the struggle of honoring and you can confess sin and you can learn how to go and confess sin to your to your wife and say I need to ask for your forgiveness I'm still trying to learn how to live this out will you forgive me for not honoring you for not listening to you for not lifting you up so that we would be equals in this relationship as one as we follow Jesus together Wives, same is true for you. What does it look like to get connected to a home group where people could pour into your marriage, speak truth into your marriage, help you begin the process of putting Jesus at the center? That husband and wife, you would look at your life as you honor and serve, that you'd be reminded over and over again in the midst of maybe an unjust situation that I am not submitting or honoring only to my spouse, but I am actually doing it to Jesus, unto Jesus for my spouse. What would happen if we lived that way? And for those of you that are single this morning, now he's saying, I hate this sermon. It's talking about marriage. My hope, my desire is that you would be able to listen and you would ask the question, if and when I ever get married, What part do I have in this relationship? And what kind of partner do I want? 
Is he or she following Jesus? Is she, he or she being a humble servant? Submitting and surrendering. And for those of you that are widows and you've lost your spouse, and maybe you had that type of marriage, would you be willing to invest in the younger people in this church? that need your wisdom, that need your guidance. See, the reality of it is we can't do any of this apart from real relationship with one another. We need each other. Singles, widows, married, husbands, wives, we all need each other. If our marriages are going to shine brightly for the world to see, So what does your next step look like today when it comes to your walk with Jesus on this topic? Whether you're single, a widow, whether you're married, what does your next step look like? And this is what I want you to know. If you've come this morning and your marriage is struggling, if your marriage is struggling, I want to tell you that if you're willing to enter in with a posture of humility, willing just to own your part Jesus is in the business of moving mountains mountains in people's hearts and if you're willing just to do your part even though you may not have hope I have hope for you because I've seen it over and over and over again but it takes someone serve to surrender to submit bring it ready for communion I just want you to bow your heads and just pray about what Jesus has for you this morning and what he's inviting you into